Our passage this morning is from Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did, the na- why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. morning. If you haven't already, let me invite you to take your Bibles and open to the passage our friend Ben just read, Acts chapter 4. Before I begin, I want to invite you to ask questions this morning. There may be some things in the story, in the text, that might be challenging to us, might make us uncomfortable. There contains some things that we haven't been confronted with before. I was joking with Sydney and Micah this morning that this passage is like the preacher's dream. You've got persecution, you've got predestination, and you've got giving. I mean, what less controversial things could we talk about? So if you have a question this morning, uh, let's start a conversation. Please send me an email, send me a text. I'd love to get together with you and and have a coffee or or share lunch. Uh, One of the challenges and the comforts of going through the Bible verse by verse is that I can't cherry pick what I do or don't want to preach on. It's it's there. It's in the text. So we believe in expositional or expository preaching where we, we want to do exegesis, which is taking out meaning from the text. We want to bring meaning out of the text. We don't want to do eisegesis. We don't want to put meaning into the text that we think is there that we want to talk about. We want to read into the text, and the text essentially becomes like a springboard for us to talk about what we want. That's not how we want to preach, because then who's right? My opinion versus yours? We want to let the Bible speak for itself. We want to interact with the Word of God. So if you have any questions, let's have a conversation. Let those questions cultivate a conversation. Amen? We're looking at the third scene in a story that really began back in Acts chapter 3, 
the first miraculous healing of the apostles in Acts. The first scene, you could say, was of a beggar. And he had been crippled for 40 years, and Peter and John were going into the temple, and they passed by this guy who's sitting at the gate. Peter and John are going to the temple, and the beggar was sitting there asking for money. And Peter looks at him and says, I have no silver, I have no gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 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 rise and walk. The man leaps up, he begins to walk, and he enters the temple walking and praising God. And Peter tells him, he gets up, right? Everyone's kind of filled with amazement. Oh my gosh, we just witnessed a miracle. What's going to happen here? Peter gets up and he, he starts preaching, trying, he explains this miracle. He said, what, what happened here is a result of the faith that this man had in the name of Jesus Christ. There's no other name like Jesus. He starts elevating the name of Jesus. He said, what humanity needs most of all, more than physical healing, is forgiveness of sins from Jesus. So this is the first sign. It's, it's really an attestation to the power of the name of Jesus, right? That's the first scene, the healing miracle. The next scene is Peter and John are arrested, and they're put, put in custody by the, the chief priests and the rulers, and they're imprisoned overnight. And the next day, they're brought before the council, and they're asked, by what power or what name did you do this? And Luke, the author of Acts Records, is what we have now in Acts 4, verse 8. Oh, there it is. Got my Bible here. Acts 4, 8, Peter says, Filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the healing miracle is pointing to this reality. There's no other name by which we must be saved than Jesus. He's talking about Jesus and the power of Jesus, and they're astonished. Right? They recognize the boldness of Peter, and they conclude, right, we, we don't really know what to do with this, but they conclude, okay, let's just tell them, stop talking about this guy, Jesus. Don't, don't talk about the name of Jesus. We don't want this thing to spread anymore. So they warn them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. See that in chapter 4, 18, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were all praising God for what had happened. So they threatened them, hey, stop talking about Jesus. And they basically say, we, we can't. We can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. So they continue. So we see first scene, the healing miracle, second scene, then before the council, and now we kind of move to the third scene. So they've been released. Peter and John have been released. They go back to the church. And how would you expect their friends to respond after Peter and John had just come back to them? Imagine if one of our church members was imprisoned overnight. 
Imagine one of our deacons was threatened. He was prison for the night. He was warned by the government authorities, say, don't talk about this Jesus anymore. How would we respond as a church? Oh my goodness. Carrie, you were imprisoned? How do they treat you? Are you okay? Did you get enough food? Here, let's make some food for you. Well, if we're being in prison for our faith, I guess it's time to leave. We got to go somewhere safer. Jerusalem is no longer comfortable for us. We need to move somewhere where we can practice our faith without the fear of persecution. What did we say? I could imagine these kind of things, right? We need to move out of this area somewhere where we're not threatened. The church, chapter 4, verse 23, when they were released, they, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, look at this, they lifted their voice together to God. They start praising God. They start praying. That's awesome, man. That wouldn't be my impulse. <laughs> Praying God, align my, align my impulses with your word. Amen? Align my heart with your heart. And the church hears this. They start praising God. They start praying to him. And what we have in, in Acts 4, 24 through 30 is, in fact, the longest prayer recorded in the book of Acts. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Luke, as he's writing all this down in Acts, he could have just said, and the church praised God and prayed to him. But he, he gives us the prayer. He lists out this prayer for us. He, he writes it out. It's significant. It shows us what did the early church cling to in the face of persecution? What did they stand on? What did they rest in? So let's look at this prayer together. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice to God, oh, together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, the word is master. And there's two things they say about this God, two clauses that begin with the word who. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So he owns everything. Heavens and earth, sea and everything, right? He, he made the temple. He made the chief priests and the scribes. He made the rulers. He, he made them. So he, he made everything and, and verse 25, and he's a speaking God. He reveals himself to us who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. God graciously reveals himself to us through human beings. This is what the early church believed, that God spoke through the mouth of Moses and Samuel and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the biblical authors, that these are the very words of God. This is what they believed about the Bible. The Bible is the inspired word of God. God, through his spirit, writing his word down through human authors. And what they see here is is a fulfillment of Psalm 2. They interpret what has happened in light of Psalm 2. They're so, I think, devoted to the scriptures that it's affected their worldview. They're understanding their experiences in light of it. They, they, They quote Psalm 2 here. It's a direct quote from Psalm 2, 1 and 2. Why did the nation... Try that again. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? It's a question. I think he's answering it in the next verse. The kings and the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're seeing this persecution as a fulfillment of Psalm 2. And look at some of the similar words that are there. Right? For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Right? They're gathered against the Lord's anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So there's like similar concepts there. Why do the Gentiles rage? The people's plot invade? 
right? Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They were set against the Lord's anointed. And here is the verse, here's the bomb. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There's a couple things that stood out to me about this. When Jesus appears to a guy named Saul later on in the story of Acts, in Acts 9, Saul was persecuting the church. Jesus asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul was persecuting the church. So I think what, what Luke is doing in this moment here is he's, he's saying Psalm 2 is fulfilled in Jesus and in the church. In other words, persecuting the church is like persecuting Jesus. It's, it's, this is the, the plan that God had set Fourth, what is God's plan for showing what he's like to the world? Right? Who represents him to the world? It's the church. So persecuting the church is persecuting Jesus. The church is to bear witness about Jesus. They're called the, the representatives, the ambassadors of Jesus. And it was all, as they say, in the hands of God. It was his predetermined plan. The translation of the Greek word proorizo, which orizo means decide, to set, to fix. And pro is beforehand. So what does that word mean in the Greek? Predetermine. Well, what does predetermine mean in the Greek? Predetermine. Decide upon beforehand. This means that the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, and the suffering of the church does not catch God by surprise. The suffering of Jesus and the persecution of the church was not by chance. It wasn't as if God is up there going, oh my gosh, they're persecuting my church what am I going to do? I, I didn't see this coming. The suffering of the church was, was not by chance. It was the plan of God. And I think Luke might wanting to be show, wanting to be show. Come on, Daniel. Luke might be wanting to show Theophilus in writing this account to him, the persecution of the church, the, the persecution of John and Peter and later Stephen and later Paul and the churches doesn't mean that it's a setback for the Christian faith. It doesn't mean that the Christian faith isn't true. It doesn't mean the Christian faith isn't valid or compelling or this wasn't the plan or we don't know what to do. This is almost a kind of apologetics, I think, of the gospel in the early church that this plan of God, this persecution, doesn't cancel the mission of God. It doesn't thwart the purposes of God. It doesn't mean that God is somehow thrown off by this persecution. It's actually, he, it's fulfillment of his plan. Does that make sense? Persecution doesn't avert God's plan, it affirms it. The Jesus movement isn't set off course by suffering, it's actually strengthened by it. So that the early church attributed the suffering of Jesus and the present persecution as being predestined to take place doesn't mean that they think Pilate and Herod and the Jewish leaders weren't responsible. Doesn't mean they didn't have choices, those weren't real choices they made. Peter accused them in Acts 4, 10 through 11. Let it be known. You crucified this Jesus. That's what he says. He doesn't say, oh, this was the predetermined plan of God, so you guys are off the hook. You were really just robots. You were just puppets. You're not held responsible. No, that's not what he says. What do you say in Acts 3? 13 through 15, the God of Abraham, the God of J Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, 
What does he say in Acts 2.23? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is probably the most clear instance of this, how these work together. According to the definite foreknowledge of God, you crucified. So the sovereignty of God is not fatalism. Sometimes when people hear the word predestination, they immediately think, oh, that can't be what it means because that would mean that we're robots because of free will. It's, it's not true because we're not puppets. That's reductionistic. That's also inconsistent with what the scriptures teach. The scriptures present both the sovereign divine will of God and human responsibility. And they present them both being true simultaneously. So these are tensions and these are the justification that makes, makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? But if, we're, if we look at the other tenets of our faith or other beliefs, we see that there's tensions and juxtapositions in our doctrine, right? God is three and one. Who understands that? Jesus was God, is God, and man. Who understands that? And I wondered, you know, many people I've, I've talked with and predestination comes up, but they've got a big problem with it. But not so much with the Trinity or not so much with the incarnation. Right, how does a virgin give birth? <laughs> it's like, that doesn't work. That doesn't happen. I wonder if the reason many, many people don't have problems with the Trinity or the divine nature of Jesus, but they have a problem with predestination and human responsibility is because God's predetermining, his plan, his bigness, kind of offends our self-centeredness, doesn't it? Our self-focusedness, our, our me-centered. I want to be in control of things. I like the way Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he was, he was once asked, how would you reconcile these, these, these two things? Predestination, divine sovereignty, and human responsibility. And he said this, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. They're not enemies. They're not against each other. They're friends and they work together. For the early church, the sovereignty of God in these events, the fact that God had predetermined these events causes them to praise God and to pray to him. It encourages them to petition to him. It's like his bigness invites prayer. And that's what I think the doctrine is to us in the scriptures. Not so much, well, why are some people saved and not other people saved? And we get in these, these philosophical up here, like, well, that doesn't affect my real life. This, this doctrine is presented to us as a comfort. The suffering of Jesus and the church was not an accident. And the rejoicing that it's coming true, that they're, later on, we're going to see in Acts that they actually are rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And that kind of confronts our very comfortable American Christianity. Anyways, sovereignty in the Bible is presented as a cause for great assurance and hope. And sovereignty fuels prayer and evangelism and preaching and brings great confidence. They praise God for his sovereignty and they petition. They go from adoration, right? Sovereign God, you created all things. You spoke to us through, by your Holy Spirit, through David. And they start asking him, what, what would you expect them to ask for, right? It's like, well, I wasn't really expecting them to praise God when they were when they just got back from persecution and being imprisoned, what would you ask for? What do you usually ask for in prayer? What do you ask for when you get sick? God, yeah, help me. Deliver me from this sickness. Get rid of this thing. I've got this bug in my stomach. It's causing all kinds of problems. Be gone, Satan. Get out of here. What do we pray for? 
I remember a conversation with a pastor friend of mine who was, who was mentoring me at the time, and I was going through a difficult time. And I was having a hard time raising funds for the church. This was early in the life of our church. It was like getting no outside support. I was working really hard. We were trying to buy a house, and we couldn't, we couldn't afford anything. We were getting outbid on houses left and right. Homes were getting like 15 bids, and they were going in cash. <laughs> we had our little first-time homebuyer loan. You know, if we could put 3% down, we, were, we just didn't have a chance. And he said, Daniel, oftentimes we ask God in prayer, God, why are you allowing this trial? Why am I suffering? Instead of asking, how is this trial and suffering making me more like Jesus? Or what do you want to teach me through this? The church, the church interestingly, does not pray for deliverance, for persecution. They don't pray that God would remove the persecution. They don't pray, God, smite those chief priests. Rain down your lightning and fire and destroy those chumps. Bring relief to our persecution. No, they pray for boldness to continue to speak the word, the gospel, through adversity in the midst of persecution. It's really fascinating, actually, in the New Testament letters. Paul doesn't really pray that the circumstances of the churches would ever change. Not that we can't, right? I'm not saying we don't. When you get sick, you shouldn't pray (laughs) because nothing's going to happen. That's not what I'm saying. But our focus oftentimes is so externally focused or immediate comfort and relief instead of, God, how can I praise you? What are you teaching me through the sickness so that I can rejoice in you through it? This is what this way pray, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answers their prayers. They're filled with the Spirit and they're empowered to speak with boldness. They pray for boldness in the face of persecution. And God grants their request. What does boldness mean? What do you think of of when you hear the word bold? When I heard this, when I was studying and I heard this word, do you remember that that old um, Dr. Pepper commercial? And they had just released uh, Dr. Pepper 10. It was like the manliest drink under 10 calories. And it, it showed this outdoorsman who has long hair and a beard. And he had like a bear who was with him. And he was like petting the bear. And then all of a sudden the commercial ends. It's like the bear is rowing the canoe. And he's sitting in the front drinking Dr. Pepper. You guys remember this commercial? It's funny. And, and <laughs> I, I was laughing as I was, because I, I remember, I don't know if it was a Super Bowl or, or some sort of, this commercial came up. And I, I just remember that, that kind of deep, manly voice. Bold flavor, right? That's what I, when I think of the word bold, that's what I think of. What do you think about when you hear the word bold, right? In our introverted, antisocial culture, we can think about the word bold as having negative connotations, right? Well, I prefer muted tones. I, I prefer uh, what I call transient tones. I prefer uh, earthy tones. I don't want something that's striking, that's bold. I don't want to stand out. Right? It, that's, and, and I think that can be some of our, for some of us, it's like we think bold kind of like presumptuous, out there, bright design. Maybe they're pushy. Right? Someone has a bold personality, they're kind of pushy. Like, ah, they're a little rough around the edges. But the sense in which boldness is used here describing a confidence before danger. It's not about style. 
It's not as if you're, if you're wearing something really bold, you're fulfilling this. But they're praying for boldness. And I, I just, I don't know if I've, I, something that I've been praying for very often. So I, I do prefer, I'm introverted, I'd like to sit in the back, I, give me gray and blues and greens. I would never be caught dead wearing like red or something really bright. But I kind of want to blend in. And this is, I believe those are praying for boldness. Well, why are they praying for boldness? It's, it's not boldness with, with refer- without reference. It's not like, God, make me bold so I can be a jerk. I, just, I don't care what people think. I'm just going to say what I, I'm, it's on my mind. That's boldness. Boldness is the trait of being willing to undertake activities that involve risk or danger, especially that involve being honest and straightforward in attitude and speech. That's the sense in which boldness is used here. Right? They're not just asking for boldness and speech of anything, as though this is seen in, or like this can be fulfilled in a spouse or a friend that asks you, hey, does this shirt or does this dress make me look fat? Like then the boldness is being honest. No, that's not what this boldness is referencing. It's grant us boldness, why? To speak what? The gospel, to share the word in the face of danger. It's that they would continue to speak the word of God with boldness. It's repeated in verse 29 and 31. Now, Lord, look upon your threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Verse 31, and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So not just bold personality, bold speaking on my mind. It's boldness to speak the word of God. R.C. Sproul says it like this. this. This prayer illustrates the way in which the church should be emboldened and encouraged by God's sovereignty. In the face of the threat of violence, the church affirms God's control of the situation, and instead of requesting physical safety, they petition for greater boldness to testify to God's gospel. Amazing. And then we find in verse 32 through 37 the the kind of second summary of what the early church did. Luke summarizes for us some activities or general statements that the church did and gives a specific example of Barnabas. So it's now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now this presents a good example, like a, an, honor, an honorable example. And next week we're going to see a bad example <laughs> and how it goes poorly for people who didn't give generously or lied about how much they were giving. But Luke here is, is he describing, I think, some fulfillment of God's promises. And in my studies this week, I learned that the language that Luke uses here is, is language that reflects the Greek ideals about how true friends should act towards one another and relate and behave towards one another. Aristotle has, has said that true friends hold everything in common. True friends are those who have one mind. And you see the similar wording and ideas that Luke uses here. But Luke is making a distinction in the church because in the Greek line of thought, true friendship was you know, one mind and and they were sharing things in common, but it was about, what's the word? 
I'm blanking how to spell it now. Reciprocity? Yeah, giving. And it was supposed to be in the same social context and class. But Luke is presenting here that's something that's unique and distinct and countercultural, right? In the Greco-Roman world, friendship and sharing was between those who were basically social equals. But Luke here is determined that the church, they shared the goods, they were marked by such a grace that they weren't expected to return what they gave. There was giving without the expectation of receiving. It's marked by God's grace. It's also fulfillment of the Lord's blessing from Deuteronomy upon the people. Moses writes this in Deuteronomy 15, 4. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. It's as though the church demonstrates this fulfillment of the promised land to preview of the new heaven and earth of all those in the community are provided for. There's no poor in need among them. This is a beautiful, compelling description of the early church. No one operated from a position or perspective of self-centeredness. It's all about me. I need to be self-protective. I need to have a self-centered focus. I think our society in many ways is very similar still to the Greco-Roman world. Much of our friendship, much of our community is still based off this. I'm going to give something to you so that I can give something back. The idea of grace is still something that's distinct. This idea of Republicans and Democrats loving each other, not letting their political perspectives affect their love for each other, or black and white, or rich and poor. Different genders, relationship in the church are based on God's economy of grace. So in this summary, you could, I think you could summarize the response of the church to Peter and John reports, and you could summarize the activities of the early church with these seven activities, sevenfold. This is, I think, what you could, if you had to summarize, what, would this, what was this church about in this time? You'd say these seven things. They were praising God. We saw that. They were particularly praising the Lord for his sovereign providence. Secondly, they were prizing the word of God. They're seeing, they're interpreting their experiences in light of the scripture. They're drawing from the scriptures. They're understanding the scripture is the word of God, that God speaks and reveals himself to us through biblical authors by the Holy Spirit. They're prizing the word of God. Three, they're, they're praying for boldness. They're praying to continue to speak the word of God with complete, with all boldness. They're proclaiming the gospel. That's what they do when they're filled with the Spirit. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Five, they're pursuing unity. They have one heart and soul. There's not a self-focus. It's an other-oriented focus. Six, they're providing for one another. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money forward, and they shared. There was no needy persons among them. And lastly, they were powered by God's grace. Great grace was upon them all. I like the way the NIV translation words it. God's grace was so powerfully at work among them. I'd like to submit to you that the root of all these activities is the grace of God. The gospel, the Holy Spirit's power, the filling with the Spirit, the boldness to continue to speak the gospel did not come automatically. But it was an answer to their prayer. Their expected, expectant, dependent, humble prayer. It was a gift of grace to God respond to his people and grant their request for boldness. So how do we grow in grace? How do we become more dependent upon the grace of God? How do we see beneath these activities the fruit that we see the root that produces these kind of things? What made the early church praise God in the face of persecution and suffering? 
What led them to be bold, to pray for boldness? How could they be so free and generous with their stuff? I submit to you that it was because of their belief in the sovereign providence of God, God's grace. The gospel activities of a church come from the root of gospel confidence. There was an early church leader named John Chrysodom. He was born about 350 AD. And I was reading one of his sermons this week about this text, one of his homilies, and he said this. He's remarking on the part of the text which describes how the place where the disciples were praying was shaken. They were filled with the Spirit. And this is what he said in his sermon. The place was shaken, and that made them all the more unshaken. I love the wordplay and the simplicity of that. A belief in the unshakable God produces unshakable faith. Earthquakes in the Bible were, were places were being shaken in the Bible, usually accompany either great wrath or great blessing from God, like punishment or kind of great favor and blessing. So Isaiah 13, 13, the prophet writes, Therefore, God speaking, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place, and the wrath of the Lord of hosts in that day of his fierce anger. See, this earthquake is demonstrated shaken by wrath. Ezekiel 38, 19 says this, For in my jealousy and in my burning wrath, I declare that on that day there will be great earthquake in the land of Israel. And so wrath and judgments poured out, marked by earthquake. But also favor. Look at Haggai 2, 5 through 8. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver are mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. He's talking about this future renewal. It's time of grace and blessing. It's interesting, when Jesus died on the cross, Matthew 27, what does Matthew record happened when he dies? There's an earthquake. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. Rocks are split. The wrath of, it's as though the wrath of God was poured out. Judgment was poured out upon Jesus upon the cross. But do you know what happens the next day? Not the next day. The third day. Sunday. First day of the week. Next day, Matthew records, on the first day of the week, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came back and rolled back the stone and sat on it. It's like Jesus' death was the death of death. Jesus' undoing, Jesus's undoing was the undoing of undoing. Right? It's as though on the cross, the earth was shaken as the punishment came down on Jesus. And as Jesus is resurrected, you see the, the grace of God is the third day was undone. And, and here in Acts, you have the place shaking as they pray. I think that's significant. It's as though God is confirming with his church, my spirit is with you. This is a sign that my great and generous grace is upon you. So John Chris is like, life around you can be shaken, but you don't have to be. In, in a sermon on this passage, Scottish pastor Alistair Begg said this. He said, You see, my dear friends, unless we understand that God is a sovereign God, then it is almost inevitable that we will be buffeted or bowed over by the events which are clearly evidences of opposition and persecution in relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We don't hold to a sovereign view of God, a great, mighty God. When we experience suffering and persecution and hardship, it's going to make our faith collapse. We can praise God in the midst of suffering and persecutions and trials. We can prize the word of God. We can cling to the word of God. We can pursue unity. We can provide for one another. We can pray for boldness as we grow in dependence upon the sovereign God. Amen? This sovereign God, this all-powerful God, this creator God, this unshakable God left, sent his son to earth to set his affections upon you. In his great love, he planned to use the evil of the Jews, the evil of the Gentiles, the nations raged against the anointed. He planned to use all of this to set his great love on you, to forgive you from your sins, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. What others intended for evil, he worked for good. When we see the sovereign plan of God in the gospel, we know that it's futile to oppose him. There's no threat to him or to us. We believe this. One of the implications of the good news that the all-powerful sovereign God sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sins and to raise from the dead, that if anyone believes in him, they'll have everlasting life. One of the implications of this gospel message is that God is for you. He's for you. He used Herod and Pilate along with the people of Israel against Jesus, that by his death, he would take your sin upon himself. Your sin doesn't separate you from his love. The punishment that should have fallen upon us fell upon him. If you trust in this Jesus, if you turn from trusting in yourself, like I'm all sovereign, I'm all powerful, it's all up to me. You turn from that perspective to God is all sovereign, it's all up to his grace. I'm dependent upon him daily. He is for you. And if he's for you, if this all-sovereign God is for you, who can be against you? I think suffering will separate you from his love. The more you grow in this belief in the unshakable, sovereign, all-powerful creator God, his plans are not thwarted by evil. He somehow in his power and mysterious plan uses that in his purposes. You will have an unshakable faith. Nothing can shake you. Trials, death, suffering, persecution, heartache, sickness, death. What's that going to change? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Think about it. What can change? If this Jesus is for you, if he's with you, then my heart and my affections start to become less entangled with my stuff my own thoughts, I'm distangled from materialism. The, the more my beliefs and perspectives are aligned with the bigness of God, the more other things become smaller and smaller. My heart aligns with him and my heart's captivated by him. Other, other things around me, they kind of just fade into the background. They don't, they don't really matter. I am not a good multitasker. Maybe the person that knows this the most is Stephanie. If I'm focused on something, it could be something really small. Like I see a bird, butterfly, you know, like it's beautiful, like a, a perfect proportion of cheese to meat to bean on a nacho chip. Or think about, think about, think about the person you know, maybe, it's, maybe you're thinking about me right now, it's horrible at multitasking. One track mind. 
You can, maybe something's coming to mind of like you're talking on the friend and then all of a sudden kind of all the answers start to sound the same, like, uh-huh, 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 yeah, mm-hmm. Like, well, they stopped listening, right? Stephanie knows this. I'm focused on something, uh-huh, yeah. I could be reading a book, I could be scrolling through social media, I could be watching a football game. If I'm focused on that, I just, I'm not listening. I can't really hear you. I'm so captivated by what's in front of me that I can't hear. I think when we pray and we seek to be captivated by this sovereign God, the God of this kind of grace, it has a similar effect in our life. We're so captivated by Christ that things around us, it's like, oh yeah, you're not as successful as you should be. Or you usually have to shoot more money. Oh, look at this commercial. Don't I mean, if you really want to be cool, you got to have this kind of car. It's like, I'm not really listening to that stuff. My, little, my insecurities that can creep up. Oh, Daniel, no one really likes you. No one really wants you. They just want something from you. So you can't really trust these people. You can't really have friends in your church. And all those kind of, those thoughts, those feelings, like, ah, they're kind of, I'm going to push those buddies down. I'm focused on Christ. Amen? Amen. We do that. We're focused on Christ. We're captivated by Christ. What can shake us? Amen? The more I see and experience and believe that I am dependent upon God for everything, he made everything, he owns everything, he has authority over everything, me, my life, my family, my time, it's not as though he's becoming bigger in my life. It's as though he is being aligned with the big, of how big he really is, right? He's not becoming bigger. Our perception of God's bigness is, is being aligned more truly with reality. And I'm led to praise and prayer. The more I see how little God owes me, I am needy. I realize I'm coming to this relationship, I'm coming to the table empty-handed. I don't have any bargaining chips in this. I'm humble and I'm independent because I know he doesn't need me. This kind of belief in this unshakable God leads to a humble confidence. It's very humbling. This, this all-sovereign God, he created all things, he doesn't need you. He doesn't. doesn't need me. But he wants us. And he wants you and he wants me. That's humbling and just, it gives me so much confidence, doesn't it? Yeah. Boldness. I can be assured, I can be at peace because I know God loves me. His affections were not set upon me because he had some sort of neediness. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I'm really lonely. I need some humans so I can love them. Wow. This is the joy of God's salvation, the hope and the confidence in his purposes for the future and a life rooted in this. This God brings sacrificial giving, generous hospitality, sharing with those who are in need, praising God for his sovereign providence and seeking to proclaim this good news with all who will listen. Doesn't it? Yeah. There's no message like this. So we pray that God would grant us boldness to speak the gospel as we depend upon him in prayer, as we prize his word together as we pray for boldness, as we provide for one another, and as we're powered by his grace. Amen? Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, you, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it through the mouth of your servant David, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the, nation, the Gentiles rage? Why did the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set are set against themselves. The, the rulers are gathered together. They're against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in Jerusalem, we believe, they were gathered against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, 
Herod and Pilate came together along with the Gentiles, along with the people of Israel, to do what your hand had predetermined to take place. And now, Lord, we ask that you grant to us, your servants, boldness to speak your word. Would you stretch out your hand to heal? Would signs and wonders be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus? Would you cultivate in us an unshakable faith in the unshakable plans and purposes of God? Would you help us to maintain the unity of the Spirit, to grow in communion with you and in sweetness of fellowship with one another? Would your great grace be upon us all, Father? Thank you that you have sacrificially given to us and for us. You sent your son Jesus to us, to unworthy, self-centered, self-focused, prideful people like me. I pray that you would remind us of our neediness before you. I, I pray that we would trust in your word that would instruct us that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. You have shown us your power in the book of Acts, and we believe that you are with us and that nothing can separate us from your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.